This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Right now, my tongue is just dancing acrobatically, and it's hitting very specific targets inside my mouth. And I'm timing it with my exhalations. And I'm also timing it with closing and opening my vocal cords to voice some consonants and unvoice others. So, so much is going on that is really the dance, the acrobatic gymnastics that permits us to speak, to beam our thoughts into each other's heads by making the air vibrate in interesting ways, which is really what we're doing with our voices. That's the voice, the gravelly voice of journalist John Colapinto. John blew out his voice singing in a pickup rock band while working at Rolling Stone magazine. His curiosity about what happened to his voice led to an illuminating and entertaining book titled This is the Voice. And it led to some unusual insights, like how the evolution of the human voice began in fish 400 million years ago, and why podcasts have become so popular today. This is going to be fun to talk with you today, John, because you're dealing with a subject that I'm fascinated with, which is my own voice. <laughs> Your voice is so distinctive. It's all I've been thinking about. Like, my God, to be interviewed by Alan Alda about the voice. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew it was distinctive until a, an operator on information, when I called information for a number, she said, okay, here you go, Alan. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. How did she know? You know, when you ask an author what got them interested in writing about what they wrote about, sometimes they have trouble. It's like, uh, oh, well, I was thinking one day and I, <laughs> I yes. came up with, you have a sort of hair-raising story for why you wrote about this book. That's true, yes. Why you wrote about in this book. Exactly. I mean, the voice is all around us, so it's so easy to just ignore. It's right under our noses, as I like to say, um, so we don't see it. And really, I injured my voice, and, and listeners may even hear a little bit of a rasp. It was 20 years ago. I was working for Rolling Stone magazine at the time, and Jan Wenner, the owner of the magazine, was putting together a rock band. Word got out that I could at least hold a tune. Um, and I'd actually been singing in an amateur way all my life, but I did not know about proper vocal 
warm-ups. And I just essentially blew out my voice. I mean, over-rehearsing. Um, it was quite a stressful uh gig. We had like 2,000 people in the audience. There was some celebrities. And uh, so I think I was pushing extra hard. Um, so what I did was I, I really damaged a vocal cord. They call it mm. a polyp. It's really a bleeding vocal cord. Um, and I, I had, it, eventually I had it diagnosed um, here in New York. And, you know, the, the, I thought the surgery was, was going to say we can just snip it off. It's like a little mass on the one of the vocal cords. I thought that's what they did. What did they, how did they get rid of them if, if you don't snip it off? They do, but what that requires is extraordinary. You go in, you're put under a general anesthetic, and then you're also given a paralyzing agent, so there can be no movement whatsoever. You're lying on your back with your mouth open and your whole throat pried open with this device. And then they reach down your throat with these tiny little scalpels and scissors. Um, and they're looking through a, a stereo microscope because everything is so small and distant. They're weighed down deep in there with a light. And they manipulate on these knitting needle-like extensions to sort of slice open the mucous membrane of the vocal cord, shell out the mass very carefully. Why all this care and bother? Because if you remove a little bit too much of the vibratory tissue that's healthy, you will damage the voice forever, which is how Julie Andrews actually ended up having to retire as a singer. She was being operated on for a polyp. And the way the story goes, she had too much good tissue taken and it destroyed her singing voice. I mean, it's just a tragedy. Um, now, what I was also told was, because everything's so delicate there, that mucous membrane can't be sewn closed. It has to heal on its own, which requires six weeks of vocal silence, strict vocal silence. There was no way I could see myself doing that at that stage of my life. So I said no to the operation. 20 years go by. Now we're talking around 2015 or something. I do a story about a vocal surgeon in, in Boston, Stephen Zytels, who saved many, many careers. He tried to save Julie Andrews, but there's no way to put back tissue that's been removed. Um, but he saved Adele's career, the pop singer, and by removing the polyp so effectively. The minute he heard me on the phone, it's a little like you with the operator. The minute he heard me on the phone, he said, you've got something wrong with your voice. It sounds like you've got a pretty bad vocal injury. You couldn't get anything past this guy. And he's actually the person that said to me, it's changing your life in ways that you don't recognize. Okay, you can't sing anymore because you can't really hold a tune properly with a big mass on your vocal cord. But he said... You know, you're not, you're not expressing emotion with the same range that you used to. You're actually subconsciously, unconsciously lowering your voice into a pitch range where it sounds a little smoother. But that's actually preventing you from going up into those enthusiastic highs or those slightly sad lows. So he said, you're perform performing through a veil of monotone. I'll never forget that. Mm. And it really bothered me. You know, I, I, that affected me. He, and then, of course, he diagnosed how, because if I overuse my voice, I get more raspy. He said, I bet you're avoiding crowded restaurants. I bet you're about avoiding loud parties. All of that was true, and I realized I was becoming, in effect, an introvert, even though I've always been an over-talkative extrovert. That makes me wonder, would you, would you find a point in the conversation where, but for your voice, you would have entered the conversation? You know, where you just hold back, you don't talk as much. I, you know, probably... I, I probably was doing that unconsciously. You know, I would not be surprised, especially if it was a loud 
If it was a loud um, environment, then I for sure would do that. I would definitely hold back because there's kind of this feeling, there's no pain receptors in the vocal cords, so you don't get pain, but there is this generalized sense of fragility in the throat area. You kind of know your instrument is not what it was. So yes, to your point, if I was in a restaurant where I realized I was going to have to go quite loud to to interrupt or get a point in, I I could almost feel like, oh, my voice isn't going to get there. I'll just hang back. And what about emotion? You mentioned emotion. Mm. Apparently, your chords, all our chords are very good at regulating the sound of our emotional life. Yes. So do you find that people don't know how you feel? When you talk to them? I guess, you see, that's what, I guess you never really know. You you don't know whether or not you're putting yourself across properly. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's sort of a built-in uh, insecurity that you can feel about what your voice is communicating. I mean, if it's super growly, I feel like people are assuming I drink bourbon all day and smoke six packs of cigarettes, <laughs> um, you know, or I'll sound like one of the Sopranos. And, you know, as a journalist, that could be bad because sometimes I'm trying to speak to someone on the phone and get them to trust me, to, you know, to tell me <laughs> stuff they don't want to tell me. And if I'm coming off like someone that's going to bump them off, it's no good. So, I mean, <laughs> literally there's so much being communicated at all times by the voice. And yeah, that whole emotional component. I mean, I think I've got enough elasticity. Maybe I've really learned how to find higher and lower ranges because I don't think at this point I speak monotonically exactly. So I, I think I have trained myself well. So that got you started in wanting to learn more about the voice. And you sure learned some interesting things. That we have a voice at all as humans comes from a surprising place. Mm, Does it ever? This was one of the things that obsessed me. It was one of the things that convinced me I had to try to write the book. If you go back to where the voice on earth, in all animals, but us especially, began, you have to go back 400 million years to the lungfish, literally to a fish. They lived in very shallow water. So they were living, uh, in effect, both in air and in water. And during droughts, they would die because they would they couldn't breathe in air. And But there has to have been a genetic mutation in some early one of those fish that permitted it to get a little bit of oxygen from the air. Long story short, over long span of evolution, the flotation bladders inside the fish that all fish have, and if you think about them, they lie on either side of the fish's spine just like lungs. Well, lo and behold, those became lungs. And remarkably, the gills inside the mouth where they breathe with water developed a slit very much like our vocal cord area into our into their throat, into their, quote, lungs. Now, the reason that was a slight problem was when they went back into the water, they could drown. Those lungs could fill with water. So that slit in their, in their bottom of their mouth became a valve that could open and close. And that's literally what our vocal cords are. We call them cords. It's a bit of a misnomer. It's from the 1700s when a a guy said they were like a violin string. They're actually a valve that very, very quickly opens and closes. And I can do the sound that our vocal cords are doing. If you blow a Bronx cheer like this, I'm lightly sealing my lips. I'm blowing air through them and they're creating that sound. And that's literally what's happening in our throat with these vocal cords. From that buzzing sound, 
We then sculpt that, of course, into language through movements of our lips and tongue. And we move the pitch up and down through tightening and slackening the vocal cords themselves. So that original um, lungfish had a very simple valve. But as creatures evolved uh, into amphibians and and reptiles and finally mammals, all of this sort of new stuff started to happen to that vocal valve that promoted survival and reproduction, changing of pitch. I mean, when you think about it, dogs growl to signal that they're angry or they whine to signal that they're feeling submissive. All of those things are you know, useful for highly social species, which mammals mm. are, and we hugely are. And we still keep that layer of growling and whining and emotional signaling through pitch and pace. But then we added this incredible layer that permits you and I right now to beam our thoughts into each other's heads by making the air vibrate in interesting ways, which is really what we're doing with our voices. And it all came from fish. It's, it, yeah. That's what I love about evolution. Yeah. It, you never know what to expect. Yes. Dinosaurs turned into chickens. Fish turned into Pavarotti. What is this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wish I'd said that in the book. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so true. And I, I love the idea that we seem to be, because of a gene, I think it's the FOXP2 gene. Yes. Because we've discovered it in... Uh, Neanderthal DNA, it's a good indication, is it, that Neanderthals also could talk? It is. It's extremely good indication. That's good. I'm rooting for the Neanderthals. I'm glad to hear any new ability they seem to have. Well, I have listened to other podcasts of yours where you've spoken about Neanderthals, and I'm so pleased that you too love them. I love them. I know the, the director, Peter Jackson, who makes the Hobbit movies, loves them because they're utterly fascinating. It's, it's you know, it used to be, a, probably still is an insult to say that someone's a Neanderthal. Well, they had brains larger than ours, and there's every indication that they could speak. And yes, the FOXP2 gene, which is this one that controls, in all mammal species, highly... Um, refined movements that are necessary. I mean, we don't think of chewing and swallowing as being a, something of a miracle, but it really is. It's timed movements to chew and swallow, and our dogs and cats can do it, and mice can do it. But they do, and and they can do it while walking, for heaven's sake, walking and chewing gum at the same time. And that really is thanks to Fox P two. So all mammals have it, but we have a turbocharged Fox P two. It underwent two mutations after we departed company from chimps about six million years ago. What did it do? It allowed us to move our lips and tongue at a speed that we don't really appreciate until we th really think about it. Like right now, my tongue is just dancing acrobatically and it's hitting very specific targets inside my mouth. And I'm timing it with my exhalations. And I'm also timing it with closing and opening my vocal cords to voice some consonants and unvoice others. So, so much is going on that is really the dance, the acrobatic gymnastics that permits us to speak. And, and again, it's because of that turbocharged Fox P2. It was very interesting, they thought, because it's long been debated, could Neanderthals actually speak a language? And when they went into Neanderthal DNA, which had been sequenced not that long ago, I think within the last 10 years, they discovered, lo and behold, their Fox P2 had undergone the same two mutations as ours had, which is uh. I mean, just utterly thrilling, utterly thrilling, I think. 
Yeah. You know, it, 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 for so long, I thought, we'll never know, will we, whether or not Neanderthals talked or when we began to talk, and that now we can find out indications of that through through studying the DNA. It's because we have no speech fossils. We have no... That's it. No ossified uh, oratory. Exactly. Everything involved with speech uh, and language dissolves. It just vanishes. I mean, the skeleton can't really tell you much. That's what fossilizes. So brains, vocal cords, all of that soft tissue. Uh, yeah, we can't study it. But you're so right. I mean, just the way science can penetrate mysteries that we had to assume were impenetrable was actually one of the great journeys of doing this book, really. And the voice being like maybe a particularly mysterious thing precisely because we can't see any of the things that are giving us a voice. Vocal cords are hidden in the neck. Lungs are invisible. Even where our tongues are hitting inside our mouths, inside our mouths. Plus, the signal itself is just invisible air molecules vibrating in patterns that we can't see. I mean, it's one of the reasons I actually was leery of writing the book. I, I thought, oh, what a great subject because my own vocal injury. And then I tried to get my hands around and I was like, well, I can't grab anything. It's all invisible. And then I started to look at these brilliant scientists that had used these wonderful ways of peeling that, that invisible onion, we'll call it. So many of the moving parts are invisible, but you also don't really hear your own voice very well. You know, it's, it's traditional when somebody, when, when tape recorders or wire recorders first came out, people said, that, that can't be me. I, I don't sound like that. Absolutely. And it's really because you're, it's one of the things I say in the book, you know, we all possess a voice recognition area of our brain where, and it's, it's interestingly, it's cabled to the face recognition area. So this was clearly, clearly an evolutionary adaptation to know who was friend or foe, who was part of our tribe. So you would get it in the facial features, but boy, you would hear it in the voice. What this means is that we have this acute ability to distinguish between the voices of people we know and love, uh, people who are celebrities like yourself, people knowing your voice so quickly. Um, and I say the cosmic irony is the only voice we don't know is our own because mm. our voice – you know, it reaches us through the air, of course, to get to our ears as everyone else's voice does, but it's also reaching us through vibrations through our body, our literally bone conduction through our skeleton and our muscles and cartilage. And so it carries it up into our ears. So we're actually hearing that as well. It's affecting stuff in our auditory cortex. So we think we sound one way and then we hear, as you say, we hear us off on a tape. And we think, oh, no, it can't. I can't sound that awful and embarrassing. And as I point out in the book, you know, so much of what – this is my own theory, but I think what's so mortifying about it is not just that it's an unusual sounding voice. It's one that's held at arm's length so we can hear it objectively. And we're hearing what we are doing unconsciously to perform mm. an ideal self. We're always that's, trying to put ourselves across, right? That's so interesting, the idea – that so much of what we communicate with our voice is at an unconscious level. We don't consciously do things to our voice to sound uh, like we're happy or sad. It happens at an unconscious level. I have to turn the tables on you briefly to say, to ask you as an actor, 
is that true of acting as well, where your major, one of your major instruments is your voice? If you wanted to communicate what seemed like real emotion, did you have to, in effect, forget about your voice and instead feel the emotion that would then unconsciously come through the voice, if you know what I'm saying? Yeah, for me, everybody has a different method. For me, it's uh, finding a way to get into an emotional state or an imaginative moment where it's not uh, necessary to get sad, to be sad in this imaginative way. It's hard to talk about. But I don't do something to make my voice different. Through the experience of improvising, I've learned how to enter a state that doesn't require me to remember what it was like to be in that state. Because I tried trying to remember, and all I could do was go blank while I was remembering mm. things. Yes, yes. <laughs> Didn't yes. seem to work for me. But this is so interesting because it goes exactly to this idea that, you know, if you try to manipulate the voice, it's going to sound in some way artificial in, in a piece of acting, I suspect. There's a story in your book about your son coming home from school. It's oh, a perfect yes. illustration of that. Yes, I'll tell it, should I? I, 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 I yeah. spent the entire day, it had to have been 2008, when the subprime mortgage meltdown was seemingly going to create a new Great Depression. And I was just terrified. I couldn't work all day. I was just watching this. And then I heard my then eight or nine-year-old son arrive home from school. And of course, all my worries were based around him and were we going to be able to feed and shelter him. Um, and he came in and I, I didn't want him to know I was terrified. So I did what I did every day. He couldn't see me. He was down around the hallway. But I called out to him and I tried with everything in my power and I thought it sounded normal to say very cheerfully, hi, Johnny, how was school? His response, what's wrong? I mean, there was no hope. He he knew immediately something was wrong. Instantly, instantly. Didn't know, he didn't know what was, he just, dad doesn't sound right. So, you know, things are happening in there that we just can't control. Muscles are tightening, pitches change, whatever it is. Yeah. And it sounds like he was making use of an evolutionary advantage that we must have developed to be able to hear when something is not on the level. I love it. Absolutely. When we come back from our break, John Colapinto tells me why being effective as a leader often depends on his or her voice, why podcasts have become so popular, and why so many young women now have a growl in their voice. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clear and vivid. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with John Colapinto. I was interested in the idea in your book that emotion in the voice and other qualities, I I assume, are deeply embedded in good leadership, or let's say effective leadership, because some leadership is effective and not good. Yes, and in fact, I had never read the quote before of Hitler saying, every leader leads with the spoken word, and that's, that's it. It's only that. And then he seems to have been successful at that. And, you know, when I came across that quote in Mein Kampf, I was just, you know, floored. Because I was looking at, you know, my book kind of looks at the various aspects of voice throughout society, how babies learn to speak and so on and outward to how we converse with one other person. But ultimately, you know, voices, I mean, societies and civilizations ultimately end up being steered by a single voice. This was the idea that occurred to me. So the voice of leadership is unbelievably important. And yes, I mean, it was actually the ancient Greeks, Cicero and folks like that, that realized that the voice and oratory and rhetoric were so important to moving minds and shifting how entire populations act and behave and who gets elected in democracies. Yes, and, you know, I, I of course, look to history for what are those voices that were singular um, and that moved people for good and ill. Demagogues, people who really appeal just, you know, really to base emotion, fear, uh, xenophobia, uh, paranoia. Those people, uh, you know, they speak in a certain way and it's highly emotional because they're appealing to you, to the masses emotions. They're kind of leaving out the, the rational layer. So yes, Hitler was the ultimate demagogue in that, you know, interestingly, people sort of forget this about Hitler, but he of course rose to power through normal democratic processes. And it's mm-hmm. when he got, to the top of the heap that he then subverted democracy so violently. But what he did was he read the emotional tenor 
of the populace between those wars, the First and Second World War, when Germany could not have been more beaten down, depressed, humiliated. And so you've got a populace that's that's very emotionally upset. And then Hitler's sort of smart move was to realize, let me fire them up. They're feeling depressed. They're feeling defeated. And that's what he did with his vocal signal. His his speeches were pretty simple. He hammered home ideas of white supremacy. He hammered home ideas of anti-Semitism. These were slogan-like, repetitive bombings just over and over. But what, what it was was this voice that just stirred people, stirred their blood, as he said. And as Goebbels said, actually Goebbels interestingly said, it doesn't really matter what he's saying. Even if you don't understand German, he's going to speak to your blood and stir your blood. I mean, what, what, what more dramatic way to say that the sort of linguistic rational layer is non-important for the demagogue? What occurs to me as you talk about the importance of the spoken word in leadership is how many different styles there are of effective leaders. Uh, Bill Clinton was thought to be an effective speaker. Uh, Barack Obama, they're not only different from one another, they're way different from uh, from Hitler. Boy, that's true. In the style of speech. And, and Lincoln is supposed to have had a high-pitched voice that was yes. not very imposing. Yes. What what is it? What is it that you're you're finding that's common to all of them? That means the, the voice is important to leadership. Yeah. Well, you know, for for the type of leadership that I think we want in the world, i.e., leadership that is not demagogic and not appealing to hatreds and and violent emotions and stirring people up to acts of violence against each other and the government itself. And this, and Cicero, I mean, this this stunned me to see that the ancient Greeks were all over this. They totally understood that this was the role of leadership that tried to create a healthy populace and a united country. So you can have people like Clinton, as you say, and Obama that have very, very different sounding voices, very different speaking styles. But if you really listen to them, there is a quality of of trying to sound rational, for one thing. Not to say that they're not emotional. I mean, I love Obama's DNC speech from 2004 when he sort of burst on the scene. No one would ever say there isn't sort of beautiful Martin Luther King-like cadences in there that he kind of learned actually from King. You know, there's not a white America, there's not, or there's not a red America, there's not a blue America, there's the United States. And his voice rising as he does this cadence. I mean, Emotion's appropriate and obviously useful for a politician, but not to sacrifice that wonderful rational layer. We're not lungfish after all. We are this highly evolved species that has to learn to live together for all of our differences. And the beautiful orators and rhetoricians can sort of bring us all together. Lincoln's voice, it was fascinating because he needed to, he had this like needling high pitch, um, which was very useful in debates. Uh, but when he, you know, with, with something like the Gettysburg Address, we don't have a tape recording of it, but we just have to read those words. And there's something in the, in the, the mournful, bittersweetness of them. Uh, where he's speaking about all of that death, and but he's speaking about this wonderful country and and you know how everyone is created equal. I mean, it's just so 
beautiful. You know it was not declaimed like a demagogue. You, you can't read it in those tones. So, and that's a man healing an entire country after this incredible violence with these words that have remained, you know, absolutely immortal. And we can just imagine the tone that they were spoken in. I wonder if that authenticity, and I think you are talking about authenticity, I wonder if there's anything in that that gives us a clue as to why podcasts are so immensely popular now. There must be a million podcasts or more out there. And they constantly say the way to have a successful podcast is to be as much yourself as possible. Oh, wonderful. And the ones that are listenable to my ear, uh, include that, e- even including uh, what, what I'm guilty of all the time, which starting a sentence and going back to get it right in, in the first place. But <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't aim for that, but it may make me sound more authentic. Oh, you know, I've been, if I can compliment you, I've been listening to your podcast and, and really hearing exactly that, that you have a natural way of talking to people. I mean, it's, and it is addictive. The best people do it that way. And it's really been a triumph for the human voice. I mean, as I say in the book, when, when this digital revolution happened, it was believed that we were going to be wearing these ridiculous virtual reality headsets and we were going to be seeing these 3D stereo opticons of fake reality around us. But what has ended up being the most popular thing downloaded in the millions is, of all things, podcasts. Human voices engaged in spontaneous, intimate conversation with each other. We're addicted to it. We absolutely love it. And that's been, of all things, what the digital revolution has brought us. I love it. That's great. Now, you know, there's this other element, too, that's very interesting, and it touches on something you've been talking about. I'm very curious about seeing people Ordinary people being interviewed like the person in the street in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and now. And now they'll say, yeah, I saw him. He was across the street. He got shot. And then this truck came by and, you know, and it it sounds like we sound to one another. Whereas from the 50s, the person, the ordinary person in the street sounds like a radio announcer. And he says... Yes, I saw him. He was uh, just across the street. (laughs) Exactly. You know, now what is that? That's the culture having an imposition on the tone of voice. And isn't that amazing to think of how contagious voices, how culturally shaped. That's really what you're putting your finger on. Absolutely. The person back in the 50s knew, oh, there's a TV camera on me or a microphone under my my nose. I've got to start speaking in that way that I know they speak on radio and TV. <laughs> and they just would, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I'm just imagining that's what it is. I mean, yeah, it's funny. Now we've all become almost worryingly uh, TV ready. I mean, I feel like everybody walking on the street now, there's nobody that's tongue-tied anymore with a camera in their face. <laughs> yeah, right. It's almost terrifying. Yeah. And they have a little powder in their pocket, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll just powder up here. No question. <laughs> you make me think of the vocal growl. It's got several names. With yes, the vocal fry. Yeah. The fry, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't think I can do it if people don't know what we're talking about. 
Yeah, I wish I could do it better. It's that it, it, young women are largely said to be doing it, although it's been discovered that men do it lots. But it's a way that they're sort of growling their voice now. And At the it, end of the word. Yes. And some in, people now do it through uh, a whole sentence. It's becoming oh, so really? contagious. Yeah. And they, they trace it to Kim Kardashian of Kardashian fame. Um, so uh, linguists actually noticed that this, that this was so ubiquitous in young women. And I mean that they started to write about it in linguistics journals in 2010 or so. And that happens to be when the Kardashian show was at its most popular. So uh. it's, yeah, it's believed that young women were impressed with Kim Kardashian's kind of, uh, lifestyle, you know, her show was after all called Keeping Up with the Kardashians. It invited mm. you to try to be as blasé and sort of cool and untroubled as this Beverly Hills pampered multimillionaire. So that was an initial thought of mine. But, you know, we have celebrity fads that last a year or less and then die out. But vocal fry has not died out in the population of women and in brackets, men as well. So there has to be something else at work, I realized. And what I really think it is, my theory is that with the rise of the Me Too movement, the election of Donald Trump, first of all, in 2016, and a sort of resurgence of, of a new feminism that certainly has some justifiable anger underneath it, um, you suddenly had women using this particular vocal tone that actually requires and sets in motion the same, all the same laryngeal muscles that an animal uses to growl. So as I say in the book, I really think that this might be a way for, that women are signaling their, their um, refusal now to knuckle under. And it's not back, sort of this, So it's a way of saying back off, bub. You got it. So I think this is a, a cultural sound signal, an acoustic thing that's that's in the animal DNA from mice and dogs and cats to human beings that, that women are unconsciously accessing as a way, as you put it, to say, back off. I'm serious. This is all so interesting to conjecture on, but there's one question before we go that I, I want to ask you. You never got the operation. You, yeah. You've written a book about the voice, the glories of the voice, the history of the voice, the meaning of it as a social connector. And have you sung again since then? I have sung, and I shouldn't have sung. I got. I, I entered what, another. So my question is: My question is, what's the matter with you? I, I know exactly, <laughs> and I, I had to address this at the end of the book because here I've written this three hundred page tome where I'm saying it's the most glorious instrument, and I didn't have mine fixed, um, and probably made it worse, as you say, because I did join another rock band, the New Yorker rock band. Um, you know what? My reasoning ended up being, Alan, that. In a funny way, I've decided that at the age of 62, um, I'm not going to be a rock star. I don't need to sing. You know, my talking seems to work. As a writer, my chief occupation and preoccupation has to be with the voice that I create on the page. So I really don't want, I almost want to downplay my vocal signal. 
I, I'm I'm extroverted. I'm talkative. John Updike said authors talk their books away all too often. You got to learn mm -hmm. to shut up. Keep the words bottled up so they burst out through your fingertips on the keyboard more appropriately. Um, now, but those in a way are are also rationalizations. At the end of the day, what I decided was that all of our voices, because they are us, they are our most identifying feature, they're going to carry the, the, the scars and nicks and patinas of age and use. My voice reflects that I overused it. And I do overuse it in speech. I'm a little reckless. I love singing. I sang when I shouldn't. I sang, you know, inappropriate with inappropriate abandon. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it scarred my voice. And you know what? I guess I've decided that's okay. I think my voice reflects ultimately who I am, the long journey that this voice has been on. So I've decided that I'll, I should keep it and, and let it be the flawed instrument that it is. Great, great. Let's end with our seven quick questions. Oh, yeah. They're loosely, loosely related to communicating. Okay. Okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I understood um, why, I wish I understood prejudice uh, mm. so that we could, we could eradicate it. I don't fully understand it. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Very, very carefully, very gently. But you do it. You do it. You speak up and you, but you, I think you do it as politely as you can, but you don't let it go. Don't let it ride. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Uh, oh boy, what's, can I say it was the last one you just asked me? No, um, <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah, of course you have. Done and not original enough. Um, the strangest question, boy, oh boy, um, I, I'm blank. I'm literally blank. I can't believe you've you've rendered you've brought me to silence with that brilliant oh, question. Okay, that's good. It'll save your voice. Yes. Let's let's say you're having dinner at a dinner party when that becomes possible again, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine, authentic conversation? with that person? As a journalist, my tendency is to ask them about themselves, but my 21-year-old son now mocks me and says, Dad, you're interviewing. So, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a little bit troubling. I think journalists are, are the worst people to ask that question of because we fall back on this professional method of bringing people, drawing people out. And I imagine if you're really interested in the answer about what interests them, it's not... It's not conventional interviewing, it's real conversation. Well, that's it, Alan. And you said something earlier today, which you say a lot on your podcast. I, I'm very curious about dot, dot, dot. And it always thrills me to hear someone say that because I'm a journalist because I am curious and my son is actually mm. wrong. Or he may be right, I may be interviewing, but it's because I find people endlessly fascinating. They're mm. rich, rich troves of the most interesting stuff we're ever going to hear and know. And you know that, that's why you do this podcast and why you love science and so on. That's right. That also introduces the next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Holy smoke. You know, you you uh, you really can't. They're just going to steamroller you. I live in New York. You can never get a word in edgewise. <laughs> All anyone talks about is themselves. You just go, mm -hmm. oh, yes, how interesting. And then think about something else. Do your taxes in your head. Conjugate French <laughs> verbs. Watch your novel. I mean, this is the thing. You just got to give in. <laughs> 
Okay, next to last question. What gives you confidence? Oh, boy. Uh, knowledge, I think, gives me confidence. Uh, knowing knowing a thing or two. I think we can't be ignorant. We, we have to read. We have to listen. We have to explore. We do have to be curious because there's nothing worse than entering situations feeling like we're not fully furnished with facts and, and, mm. and opinion, I think. Yeah, I guess knowledge. Fully furnished. Good. Last question. What book changed your life? It was ha- has to have been some John Updike short stories, I suspect. I was reading, uh, it might be an early collection, and I was in the middle of reading a story, and I, I mean, I can't explain exactly how it worked, but I suddenly realized that language, written language is not a sequence of string of words. It actually can also create three-dimensional uh, reality. It's almost like sculptural. And I was reading something by him, and I, I probably was 15. And I, I, it was almost like seeing a two-dimensional space jump into three dimensions. And I realized, oh, I've got to do that. Or I've got to know how he did that. And it sent me on my, my life's quest, I guess, of being a writer. So I suppose I would have to say that. You know, John Updike's early short stories. I love answers to these questions that require a whole other podcast to explore. So thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you. I had a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you, So did I. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Our thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science for the benefit of humanity. John Colapinto is an award-winning journalist who has written for Vanity Fair, New York Magazine, and the New York Times Magazine. Today, he's a staff writer at The New Yorker. The book we talked about is This is the Voice. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Anna DeVere Smith. She has the unique ability to theatrically define sweeping changes in our culture by presenting us with portraits of individual people. And she uncannily brings those people to life without actually impersonating them. I call it portraits because my intention is not to uh, be an impersonator. And it really is that whoever... I'm portraying, I really, really admire something about the way they express themselves. And so I I think of it as a portrait of their expression more than anything else, whether that's their physical expression 
or their, uh, the way they use words. Hannah DeVere Smith, next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, we follow up on our exploration of the human voice by going inside the brain where the voice is generated. Neurosurgeon Edward Chang has recorded the electrical activity of the brain as a person is speaking. His goal is to reproduce the words based on the brain's activity and give a voice to those whose ability to speak has been lost. I've certainly seen in the context of my work as a physician taking care of patients that have speech and language disorders that um, it can be absolutely devastating and I really started thinking about the mechanisms, you know, thinking about what are the computations, what are the algorithms that the brain must compute in order for us to have language and speech. Now it really is starting to look like it could be practically used, um, perhaps in the future, to help people who are paralyzed and have lost the ability to communicate. Dr. Edward Chang, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.